The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And then the question becomes, not why is the internet insecure, but why are our endpoints so insecure? Why are our operating systems so insecure? Why are our computers so insecure? And so that's what I investigated, why was Unix, which was the operating system used at the time on the internet, why, why was it so insecure? And here comes the upcode explanation, which is that the Unix was created for researchers to share their stuff, not to prevent people from stealing it. So I, I think the, 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 the story of the Morris worm, not only I think is a kind of an engaging story about like <laughs> a kid who accidentally crashes the internet, um, but also the story of what kinds of, what's the design principle of the internet and what kinds of cultural practices led to the creation of insecure endpoints. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 23rd, 2023. Hacking and cybersecurity are evergreen issues in the news and on lawfare. Scott Shapiro, a professor of law and philosophy at Yale University, has a new book on how and why hacking works and what to do about it. It's called Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age and Five Extraordinary Hacks. Scott and I talk about how his pre-law professor obsession with computers, combined with his recent work in international law, led him to write the book. And we discuss the lessons that the five hacks discussed in the book teach, including the limits of technology in solving cybersecurity problems, the importance of the human dimension to cybersecurity, and why we shouldn't be panicked about the state of cyber insecurity. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 23rd. The Dark History of the Information Age. Scott, you're a professor at Yale Law School with a PhD in philosophy, and you're best known for your work in jurisprudence. So my first question is, what qualifies you to write a book on hacking and cybersecurity? Yeah, what <laughs> indeed, what does qualify me to write this book? Well, so like so many young boys growing up in the uh, 70s and 80s, I became obsessed with personal computers. My parents got me an Apple II, and I just got really into coding. And then I was a declared computer science major in college and had my own small computer company. And I published in theoretical computer science. And then I just stopped um, right before the web came out in the early 1990s and I got a PhD in philosophy and got a law degree and I just kind of gave it up. But I had a lot of this background from, from my earlier education. And so when I finished writing a book with, with our friend, my colleague, Ona Hathaway, on war, people were asking, well, what about cyber war? And I thought, well, I could I could figure this out because I, I know how operating systems work and I know how to program an assembly, yada, yada, yada. And then I found out that actually it was really hard to learn um, how to do it. So I immersed myself for several years learning how to hack and learning about cybersecurity and doing deep research in it. And what I found fascinating is that on the one hand, um, there's so much information out there on it. On the other hand, it's very, very hard to understand all that information. So I thought, well, 
maybe I would write a book that would help people understand what's going on and kind of take them along the journey that I had going from knowing about computers to kind of basic stuff about computers, but then learning how hacking works. And um, it was really fun, but also very hard. And I wrote up the book. I thought other people might enjoy learning about it. Well, I certainly enjoyed learning about it. I, I know a decent amount about cybersecurity and I learned and hacking, at least um, in some areas. And I learned a ton from the book. And it's, I mean, it must have been very hard to write because it's unbelievably accessible. I mean, this is a book that gets into technical and philosophical issues. It explains some technical sides of hacking that are extremely accessible. It, the, the philosophical discussions are interesting, but the whole thing is is told through uh, five stories. The, the title of the book, the subtitle of the book is The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks. So you tell these stories to answer three questions, and you say this up front in the book. One, why is the internet so insecure? Two, how do hackers do what they do? And three, what can be done? And I guess the stories are designed to answer the first two questions. Why is the internet so insecure? And what, how do hackers do what they do? So I want to walk through some of the stories. But before we do that, I just want to get a basic distinction out on the table. I think one of the most important distinctions that runs throughout the book. And that's the distinction between down code and up code. Would you explain what that means? Yeah, sure. Um, so downcode is the uh, word that I use for anything that's below your fingertips um, code-wise. So it's your operating system, your application programs you're using, network protocols, what's going on in your router, all the stuff below your fingertips. That's downcode, the technical computer code. Upcode is anything above your fingertips. So psychological habits, social norms, legal norms, industrial standards, website terms of service, all the kind of norm stuff that you and I uh, talk about in our day jobs. That's what I call upcode. And what I what I try to I try to show through the stories is that you can explain hacking through downcode and that's what I try to do. I try to explain how do buffer overflows work, how does you know, SQL injections work. But more importantly, how did we get to the point where these attacks work? In, in other words, what kinds of incentives are out there that uh, influence developers to create insecure code and then influence users to be tricked into um, into divulging their information. And so the, the idea is that upcode shapes downcode. That is the reason why we have the technical vulnerabilities that we have is in large part because of the political or human vulnerabilities in the upcode. And so by telling the stories of these human beings who kind of get into these sticky situations. I, on the one hand, I was trying to make it a readable experience and I wanted to explain how things happened organically, but I also wanted to kind of show people that these, these hacks arise because human beings are acting in certain ways, responding to certain legal norms, certain social norms, certain types of cultural expectations that lead them into engaging in criminal activity. And so I, in trying to humanize hackers, I was trying to show the human dimensions and, and, and where we might intervene in the upcode to create better downcode. Okay. So you play out that thesis and do much more through five stories. Let's start with the first one. This is the story of the famous Morris Worm. Um, this story has been told before, but you tell it in a new, engaging way. But many of our listeners might not even know what the Morris Worm is. So can you just remind us? Yeah, yeah, sure. So Morris Worm is considered the first kind of major internet hack on November 2nd, 1988. 
a graduate student, first year graduate student at Cornell, Robert Morris Jr. He released a worm that is like a self-replicating computer program in part as a, as a, as a science, science experiment. He wanted to see how essentially big the internet was, um, but he, accident, he accidentally crashed it. And it was like a major, major news story when it happened. It was actually the first time that the media ever used the word internet, which is, which is amazing. Um, and Robert Morris uh, was indicted, tried, and ultimately convicted of um, violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And I think uh, it was a shock to, to, to the computer science community uh, that a graduate student could take down the internet, which is scary not only from a research perspective, it would just uh, mess up the research network that was created, but it also people worried about the military implications would would somebody be able to set off a nuclear war through hacking so it was a it was a very big deal and in the book i think what i tried to address by telling the story and one of the things i think is new about the way i tell the story is that um, nobody has had as far as i know nobody has had a copy of the trial transcripts so I was able to, at the Yale Law Library, uh, went to Syracuse and uh, copied all of it, so the, all 2,000 pages. Um, and so I got to read the entire uh, trial record and learn about exactly uh, what had happened, um, both um, factually, but also legally. And one of the questions I was really interested in is like, how could this happen? Why is the first question that I talk about in the book, why is the internet insecure, so insecure that a grad student could crash it? And um, the argument I try to make is that in a way that's the wrong question. The, the question should not be, why is the internet insecure that a graduate student could crash it because I think people don't understand that the way in which the internet was designed, it was designed so, to, to follow what's sometimes called the end-to-end -end principle. The idea is that you put all the intelligence at the end, at the computers, the phones, whatever, and you make the inside of the internet pretty rudimentary. The point of the internet is supposed to be to transmit information. And what the Morse worm showed was the, the, the internet was working exactly as it was supposed to. It was taking things from one end to another. The problem was, is that the endpoints were so insecure. And then the question becomes not why is the internet insecure, but why are our endpoints so in insecure? Why are our operating systems so insecure? Why are our computers so insecure? And so that's what I investigated. Why was Unix, which was the operating system used at the time on the internet, why, why was it so insecure? And here comes the upcode explanation, which is that the Unix was created for researchers to share their stuff, not to prevent people from stealing it. So I, I think the, 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 the story of the Morris worm, not only I think is a kind of an engaging story about like <laughs> a kid who accidentally crashes the internet, um, but also the story of what kinds of what's the design principle of the internet and what kinds of cultural practices led to the creation of insecure endpoints. So let me ask you about that. I understand, and it's well known that the internet wasn't built with security in mind. It wasn't designed with security in mind. But what exactly, I mean, it wasn't quite clear on what exactly the state of the world was in terms of concern about cybersecurity when this happened. I mean, I mean was there widespread concern that this growing mechanism or whatever you want to call it would you know be able to be used for ends other than uh, maybe negative ends or ends other than research and that it was vulnerable to hacking so what what was the kind of state of understanding of, about cybersecurity at the time of the hack and how shocking was this or was it to be expected so the first 
conference on cybersecurity was in 1967. So even before the first links in the internet, the ARPANET were created, as computers became multi-user systems and more than one person could use the computer at, at the same time, people started to worry, well, like, would would one user be able to get the information of another user? The big cultural event that put cybersecurity on the map was the movie War Games, which tells the story of a teenager in his room who is what is now called war dialing, um, that is randomly dialing um, numbers over a modem to try to see if he can get a connection and gets a connection to what he thinks is a video game repository, but it turns out to be a NORAD computer and almost starts a nuclear war. And Ronald Reagan saw this at the White House and then uh, got very concerned, um, as did many members of Congress. And this becomes the origins of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, which makes uh, it a federal crime for the first time to to hack computer certain types of computers. So this the the idea of cyber insecurity is bubbling up in the 1980s, but I don't think that people even knew that there was this thing called the internet. I was a computer science major in the 1980s, and I didn't I had never heard the word internet. I didn't even know that there was an internet. I knew I could get information from other computers, but I didn't know anything really about it. So I think the Morris worm was a shock to everyone, even though the country was primed through war games to be concerned with this. How much do you think it was a shock to his father? Tell us who he was. Oh, my Lord. So this is like a, like every father's and son's nightmare. So um, Robert Morris Jr. is uh, the son of uh, Robert Morris Sr., Bob Morris, who is a uh, mathematical cryptographer who works at Bell Labs. It, 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 amazingly, my father and his father worked at the same in the same place, although I, I don't think they knew each other. My father was an electrical engineer working at Bell Labs. But it turns out, uh, and this is so painful um, to you to, to, to every time I think about it, but his father, Bob Morris, had left Bell Labs and had become the chief scientist for the National Security Agency. So when the Morris worm hit the newspapers and the news, Robert Morris Jr. had to call his dad the head scientist for cybersecurity at the NSA and say, dad, I just crashed the internet. I'm the person who did it. And that, that must've been extraordinarily difficult for, for that, for the family. And uh, my, my heart goes out to them. And that must've been a terrible experience. It must've been an interesting time inside the NSA to have those conversations. Oh my God. I mean, you know, uh, my, my, at the time, Bob Morris was trying to get a promotion um, moving out, he loved the NSA because that was like the repository of all the cryptographical secrets. Um, and he was a cryptographer. And then he, he had to leave. It was just, uh, not he had to leave, but like it really stalled his uh, career. So it was uh, <laughs> not a good situation. Not a good situation. Okay. Second story is uh, Paris Hilton's nude photos. Right. So in the book, so just say um, there were five, there were five hacks. The second one is the Bulgarian virus factory. It, this is a story about how the hotbed in the war, the global hotbed hot zone for um, computer viruses was Bulgaria in the early 1990s. And so uh, I talk about the Bulgarian virus factory in the, in that scene and what viruses are, yada, yada, yada. Well, let me just actually, let me just actually ask you a question about that. Could you just give us a, a thumbnail account of, you have a really interesting discussion in those chapters of kind of the psychology of the young hacker. Can you just kind of summarize the learning on that? Yeah, so um, it turns out to be the case that the stereotype, certain stereotypes about hackers are true, which is that they tend to be almost all young men. Uh, they tend to get into hacking through gaming culture, at least in the West, and 
contrary to the stereotype that they're loners, they're in fact incredibly social, but they're social online. And peer pressure and status and being an elite hacker plays an enormous role in um, why these hackers do what they do and how they escalate. And in a way, what we would say um, nowadays, you know, they were chasing clout. They were trying to be considered like really excellent hackers and players at this game and things got kind of get out of hand. And it's amazing how many hackers, how that actually encapsulates the, the case histories of so many of these hackers. And it's a little different in Eastern Europe and other less developed um, tech economies. Their uh, hackers, it's less about trying to be elite and more about trying to make money um, um, on the side. So the Bulgarian virus factory story kind of got, got into the psychology, like who's, who, who would write a virus and release it? Like, it just seems like such a malicious thing to do. And it's the kind of malicious, stupid things that young, young boys do. And also, first of all, I was surprised that there's a, seems to be a robust literature about this, but also when they're pressed on it, when they finally get caught, it seemed like there were several examples of them kind of not having a realistic understanding of the impact of their actions in the real world. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I think that's why, um, you know, Twitter is the way it is and, you know, why the internet is the way it is, is that, you know, as Mike Tyson said, the social media made it such that you can say you can insult somebody without getting punched in the face. And Part of it is that, like, how are they gonna, how are they gonna hurt you? But I think more importantly is that it doesn't feel real to them. It's happening to some nameless, faceless person over the internet. They're just doing it for the lulls, you know. They, as um, Sarah Gordon, who who did so much work uh, in the early, uh, in the mid '90s, to try to figure out who these who these kids were. As she said, the problem is that they never saw somebody cry because they lost their thesis. If they did, they might reconsider their actions. So it's just a story of like the difficulties that human beings have dealing um, online without seeing somebody that you're hurting visually and, um, and, and hearing them cry. Okay, now let's go to Paris Hilton's nude photos. Yeah, because I mean, in a way, this is a continuation of that story. So in 2005, big news, Paris Hilton, the, I mean, the it girl of that decade uh, has her phone, her cell phone hacked and nude photos leaked onto the internet. And the big question is, how did it happen? How could somebody hack her cell phone? Do you remember... Paris Hilton, you know, is 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 obviously a celebrity. She's surrounded all the time. Um, how how's a hacker gonna get to her cell phone? And what's fascinating is that the way in, the stories that I tell in the book is always like hackers are kind of taking advantage of the next wave um, in development of the internet or in computer technology before everyone else catches on. And so what people didn't realize in 2005 was that there was this thing called the cloud, that our phones would be uploading and downloading, being constantly in sync with these remote servers somewhere and that your pictures, your data are not going to just be on your phone, but going to be on in the cloud. And then it's going to be accessible by web, by the web. And so there are all these theories as to how her cell phone could have been hacked. You know, the New York times ran a story, a front page story, I believe on on how she got hacked, saying that was it might have been Bluetooth. It might have hacked Bluetooth. Now, the only problem is that her cell phone, the Sidekick 2, didn't have Bluetooth. Another claim was that um, people guessed her her security question. So what, what, what's, the, what's the name of her pet 
Chihuahua, which was Tinkerbell. So what I what I did was I found the person who was ultimately convicted of the hack, um, uh, a 16 year old boy uh, called Cameron Lacroix, and he has spent many years in jail for various types of um, uh, recidivism for hacking. And I was able to track him down and to learn about how exactly he was able to hack her phone. Um, And I won't spoil it for people, Um, but it was two weeks before the book was going to press, like I couldn't change it anymore. I finally got in touch with him and he told me the story. And so it's a really interesting story. He's now 32 and he's really kind of changed his life. He seems to have aged out, as they say, of virus writing. And, um, you know, I, 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 I wish him luck building his life back because I do think he feels very regretful that he had done what he had done. Uh, he apologized on national television to Paris Hilton at the time. And so I tell his story. So I think it was in these chapters where and I didn't, or didn't really appreciate this. You talked about how Bill Gates is Microsoft CEO at the time, I guess, founder Bill Gates's slow reaction to the importance of the internet. And then his aggressive reaction to the threat that the internet posed to his business model, how those two impulses were really responsible for a lot of the insecurity in the network. Is that fair? I think so. I think, um, you know, I mean, I blame Bill Gates a lot in the book. I think that is entirely appropriate. The story that I tell and has often been told is that Microsoft missed, at least initially, the internet revolution. When uh, Michael Andreessen is, is, um, is building Mosaic, which becomes Netscape and Silicon Valley becomes internet crazy, Microsoft and Bill Gates are focusing on Windows 95. They want to maintain and extend their iron grip on the operating system so that basically computers of the world need to run Windows. And so they're so focused on Windows that they miss this new thing, the internet. And when they have to, after Windows 95 comes out, they have, they realize they have to play catch up, but they're, they're pretty behind. And so Bill Gates sends down an edict, which is we are going to webify everything. We are going to connect everything to the web. Now, if you take like a re, you know, an operating system like Windows that had been developed from DOS, from disk operating system, which was a single use computer system, uh, operating system, and then you, de- you develop and had no security features and you uh, develop a new product from that, and you're not thinking about security, and then all of a sudden you connect it to a global network of networks, you're going to get a disaster. And that is what the story of the late 1990s and the early 2000s is. If you ever, I'm not sure, maybe you remember, but the blue screen of death, you know, the, the windows crashed all the time. It was just terrible. People think about security as just about people stealing your stuff, but security is also about making sure your computer works. And it was just always crashing through various types of malware or bad drivers or just this relentless uh, movement to capture as much market share as they could or hold on to as much market share as they could, um, which just creates a nightmare. And the only thing that turns it around is 9-11. 9-11 all of a sudden acts as like a security shock to everyone now is all of a sudden interested in security. And then they learn that, wow, a lot of things are connected to the internet and they're running Microsoft and it's, it's a really insecure operating system. Something needs to be done. Linux 
becomes commercialized at the time. There's um, Apple comes back on the scene. So there's now pressure. People are breathing down Microsoft's neck saying Microsoft is, um, you know, if you don't want your computer always to crash, use a different operating system. So they're scared because they went too far. The, 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 the really nice story, I think, is that people think that Microsoft really changed their, what I would call their corporate upcode. That is, they really changed how they think about software development. This is sometimes um, called secure software development. Like, how do you, how do you build uh, systems from the, from the outset that are secure? And um, they've done a, I think they've done an absolutely wonderful job my Windows rarely crashes. Um, Anti-malware software is really well integrated with Windows. So um, it's a real story of a turnaround and it's an upcode turnaround. It's an up, it's a change in corporate values. But it's a change in corporate values that I assume was driven by business needs because, I mean, the products were so unreliable and buggy. I mean, wasn't that part of the reason why they switched? Oh, absolutely right. So lots of times we create new norms um, that are good for not the (laughs) most noble of reasons. Absolutely. I think partly Bill Gates was uh, worried that they were getting so many client complaints that their product they're worried it was going to lose its competitiveness. But I also think that, you know, post 9-11, I think, you know, as Americans, we started worrying about security as like a real thing. And um, I don't want to, I, I, I mean, I can't jump into Bill Gates's mind, but I would imagine that, you know, some sense of like, well, actually, this is now a national security threat. And, you know, as an American, I should do something about it. As a human being, I should do something about it. I think that probably motivated him to some extent as well. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn 
to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Okay, let's move on to the the story that gave the book its name, The Hack of the Democratic National Committee. And I'll let you explain why that gave the book its name. Oh, yeah. So, um, the, so the book's called Fancy Bear Goes Fishing. Fancy Bear is the name of one of the hacking units of the GRU, Russian Military Intelligence. And as I'm sure many people uh, that listen to Lawfare know, remember that um, Fancy Bear hacked the DNC in March, April of 2016. It was also the case that roughly a year earlier, another uh, Russian hacking unit codenamed Cozy Bear had also infiltrated the Democratic National Committee's computer network. So you had two Russian intelligence units somewhat competitively in the same DNC networks. And they and at least Fancy Bear got into the into the network through phishing. You should explain that that's PH, not F. 
Oh, right. Yes, yes. It's the it's the computer phishing. So, you know, as we all know, phishing is like a deceptive email designed to um, uh, have somebody elicit sensitive information, which can be used to compromise um, their computer security. And uh, we have a lot of the phishing emails from from Fancy Bear. And I was able to like analyze those phishing emails to show why they were very well designed uh, phishing emails. But I think the main the main question I was really interested in this, in in talking about this hack, which was like, how could it have happened? So the FBI knows a year ahead of time. Uh, well, let's see. They know from September, at least from September 2015, maybe earlier, probably earlier, several months earlier, that Russia has infiltrated the DNC. This is the Cozy Bear intrusion. And it takes six months for uh, the FBI to have a, a conversation with the DNC. So, like, why does it take so long for the FBI to get in touch with the DNC? And why the DNC, when when they when they get feelers out from the FBI, why don't they respond right away? I mean, it seems like a, like a four alarm fire. The Russians are in our network. The Russians are in our network. So I was really interested in to, to try to figure this out. I mean, for me, for me, this is the best example of, it's the most powerful example in the book of an upcode failure. Oh yeah. So, so yeah, thanks. So in, in a way what happens is, is that the FBI, we don't, we, as Americans, we kind of don't, I mean, you do, and maybe many listeners to uh, Lawfare Podcast know this, but the FBI is this hybrid organization. It's a combination of a, like a counterintelligence organization and a law enforcement organization. And they both exist in the same organization with um, you know some, some separations between the two, obviously. And from an intelligence perspective, the fact that the Russians were targeting the uh, the Democratic National Committee was completely unremarkable. I mean, I, 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 this may shock you, Jack, but states hack other states. <laughs> you know, in even America, even America hacks other states. Right, we learned this. We learned this from Mr. Snowden. Um, well, we learned this from Mr. Snowden, but I also... We, we, we knew it before then, but we really saw the documents with Mr. Snowden. Right, right. So we know what we learned from Snowden is just the, the, the amazing reach of the NSA and other members of the intelligence community. But the idea that Russia is targeting the DNC is that they're, tar- they're targeting everyone. They're targeting Brookings. They're targeting p- political science departments. They're going after as many targets as they can, in part because um, they ran out of hard targets. Um, in 2012 and 2013, there's this effort to infiltrate the NSA, the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs. And they're just kind of widening their circle. And the fact that Russia is targeting the DNC is like, Okay, you know, dog bites man. News at eleven. It's just not. It's just not news. So on the one hand, you know, the FBI is doing like courtesy calls to different political organizations, like the Russians are targeting you. Let me go down to the next one on my list. So one thing is, is that this is completely unremarkable from an international relations perspective under international law. In fact, espionage for national security reasons is is actually legal. Now, why doesn't the DNC respond? Well, because the DNC is not that surprised that the Russians are targeting them. But more importantly, they're worried that this is a a part of the Hillary email investigation. They think this is not counterintelligence. They think that, you know, this could be the law enforcement side. In fact, the law enforcement side did reach out in this case. So they're not that anxious to talk to the FBI either. And one of the things that's amazing is that FBI prosecutors are not allowed to lie, but FBI agents are. So the NCAA doesn't want to talk to the FBI. The FBI is not in a huge rush to talk to the DNC. And in a way, people are acting rationally given the, the upcode 
but it kind of leads to a disaster. Yeah, I mean, that's the amazing thing is that the Russians were in the network. The FBI knew it. The DNC knew it, that someone was in the network. But they were all blasé about it, as you show in wonderful detail. And yet they just didn't contemplate these enormous, the enormous damage that could be done. It just wasn't on the radar screen, it seemed. Right, because it's, let me use the word again, global upcode stated that you you are allowed to steal information from, if you're a state, you can steal information related to national security from another state, um, but keep it to yourself. I mean, this is espionage. But even doxing was not new then. I mean, there are examples in international relations going back a long ways of one country stealing information from another and then publishing it or publishing some version of it to try to affect international relations. But that, but again, for all the reasons you're saying and more that you talk about in the book, it just wasn't on, it just wasn't imagined. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it was an understandable failure of imagination, I would say. But if you kind of think about it from the perspective of the intelligence community, you know, it, it, you could see how it could happen, um, though it was obviously a failure and a big failure. And so, you know, what to make of it? Um, I think, um, you know, the, 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 the FBI probably needs to manage its um, you know, the relationships between its intelligence side and its criminal side in in a different way when it comes to political campaigns, which, of course, you know, we're still dealing with the fallout from from 2016 and and this problem and whether Section 702 of FISA gets re-upped is very much implicated in this. Yeah. So that's a I'm going to skip over the last story about the Mirai botnet. I think that's how you pronounce it. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. I want to skip over that. It's a great story, but I want to get to some bigger themes in the book. And it follows right from what you just said. So the DNC hack was a huge deal. And it was, by any measure, hugely successful from the Russian perspective and hugely damaging to the United States. And all of the hacks you talk about were, in some sense, big deals. And yet one big theme of the book, and you state this right up front, is that you're not panicking, that you're against alarmism in this area. Can you explain why? Yeah. So I think, so I I, I don't want to be a Pollyanna about it. Obviously, hacking exists. Um, Cybercrime exists. Cyber espionage exists. Cyber war may or may not be a thing. But I think that there's this sense that many people have when they read about hacking is that since there's security vulnerabilities in code everywhere, and that since there are these nameless faces, uh, faceless hackers all around the world, and since so many stories of hacking um, are in the news, they worry that they're obviously going to be hacked because everyone's getting hacked. And one of the things I, I was try, I try to get a Cross in the book is, you know, just because you can be hacked doesn't mean you will be hacked for the simple reason that you don't have what most cyber criminals want. Um, they don't really care. They don't really want to spy on you when you make dinner. They're trying to make money. They're trying to pick off people who have who, who make it really, really easy to hack them. And when I, what, what, what I try to tell people is, you know, we can get so overwhelmed by all the security advice that we're constantly be given. Don't reuse passwords, have your passwords 12 uh, letters long, um, you know, immediately, uh, you know, use a VPN, whatever, whatever people say, largely, You'll be safe if you just don't do stupid things like clicking on links from people that you don't know or just refusing to update your operating system no no matter what. If you make it a little bit harder for cyber criminals to get you, 
then it won't be worth their effort to because it'll be more, it'll take them more time and more money to get you than it's worth. So that, that, that's one thing I just want to tell people, like, just don't do the reckless things. Um, and you don't have to have like 37 special characters in your password. Um, you know, you should really use two-factor authentication. It's a little bit of a pain in the ass, but it's unbelievably good technology. Um, people say, oh, if you use two-factor authentication, you should not use uh, a text, you know, SMS. Yeah, you shouldn't do that. You should use, a, 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 you know, something like Duo. But it's so much better um, than not having two-factor authentication. So I think that the, the kind of part of the alarmism I want to com combat is that you don't have to be bulletproof. Um, you just have to be a little bit better than um, the next guy to be vulnerable and to get hacked. Mistakes happen. Accidents happen. You can get unlucky. Uh, happens all the time. That so, therefore, you should have backups. But you know, other than that, live your life. Okay, and yet you think we can do a lot better. And your advice, first of all, you're against solutionism. I want you to explain what that means, and then and then, and then we'll talk about what your what your anti-solutionist solutions are. Right. So yes. Yeah, so solutionism is the term that was coined by the social critic Evgeny Morozov um, to describe this sense that, you know, it's very, very rampant in, a, in America nowadays, certainly a Silicon Valley ideology, at least in part, that the way to solve social problems is through technology. You know, always think about how can we create or deploy or adapt um, technology to solve the social problem. You know, climate change, what's technology? Cybersecurity, what technology can we use? So solutionism in cybersecurity would say we have to get rid of as many vulnerabilities in the down code as possible. Um, and we should be using as much, you know, protective technology as possible. And what I, what I try to get across is the idea that when you think about technology, you have to realize that like human beings made it and they're following incentives, many, many kinds of incentives, you know, legal incentives, social incentives, you know, personal habits, um, personal ethics. There are so many reasons why people get up in the morning, go to their job. Financial incentives. Are right, right. And of course, right. Of course, financial incentives. They get up, they go to work and they go home. And the, the down code, so to speak, is the result of that. It's the result of a long chain of uh, incentives and norms which, impo which impose these incentives. And so the thought is that once you get to the down code, you're already at the end of the chain. And it's in some sense, it's kind of too late. You have to fix something that you might have been able to uh, forestall by just changing the incentives that coders had in the first place. So you know, people often talk when they talk about downcode about the the stack. So you have like a, a set of uh, of code that all kind of kind of interlocks. So you have you know your operating system, and then you have your application, and then you have your graphical user interface. So you have these layers of downcode, and I want to say we have layers of upcode. We have all these kinds of rules which then bottoms out in the creation of downcode. And when I speak, you know, I'm a lawyer, as of course you are. And what I want to say is that lawyers are coders, but they're upcoders. And we're good at figuring out how to, how to adjust, develop, um, tweak rules that will create different kinds of incentives. Um, and so what I want us to focus on is making the rule such that the code that we have um, is much more secure. So we don't even have to say to the user, make sure not to be so reckless. Let's make it easier for people to be secure, even though ultimately they have to 
bear some responsibility in making sure they don't do stupid things. Okay, so so I have a couple of questions about that. The first one is just to make sure I understand. I mean, you say somewhere in the book that, and this is basically what you just said, that solving problems in the upcode stack can fix or counteract problems in the downcode. And that's a lot of what the book is about, is showing that a lot of these cybersecurity problems are what you call upcode, the, the incentives for and foibles and psychological defects in human reasoning and behavior and organization. But it runs both ways, doesn't it? I mean, you gave the, the example of two-factor authentication. That's a downcode solution, or at least partially. And isn't it isn't it always a back and forth? Don't we always have to go and improve one or the other? And and it's not the case that either one of them is a silver bullet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so let me just say, I I, I don't make the claim, or at least I hope I don't make the claim, because it's false. Um, that upcode can get rid of all the vulnerabilities. No, no, in the no, 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 no. I wasn't suggesting that. But, but explain the explain the relationship a little bit more because there are downcode solutions. To, yeah, no, to absolutely. Yeah. Or, so yeah. right. So I'm not against. I'm not against yeah. you know using anti malware um, software. I really hope you do do that and, and all these other things. I you know take two factor authentication. Two factor authentication has been around for a while, but the DNC didn't use it. If the DNC had used two-factor authentication, the phishing attacks most likely would not have worked. They did not work against Hillary's campaign, Hillary for America, because they did use two-factor authentication there. So the fact that the technology exists doesn't actually mean that anyone's going to use it. The way it the way it gets used is like, let's say at Yale, for example, my university, I have to use two-factor authentication or else I can get into a lot of my information remotely. This was a decision made by the university that security required this form of inconvenience. So the technology itself is one thing, but there needs to be rules which require people to use these things. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is that, of course, there is a feedback loop um, between upcode and downcode. So the upcode shapes the downcode. That is, the incentives shape what kind of code gets developed by engineers. But then the creation of new technologies force us to think newly about normative problems. So just think about social media uh, and content moderation. How should private companies deal with speech on the internet? What is the responsibility, the duties of private companies like Twitter and Facebook to police the speech on their platforms. This is an upcode question, which generates up, and we even have a court, a court-like thing, the Facebook Oversight Board, that it kind of is adjudicating upcode questions, developing it in a certain direction. So now we have new upcode in response to this technology that we didn't have before. So it is a kind of a feedback loop. But ultimately, what I want what I want people to do is not always think, what's the technical fix? I'd like them to think, how did this happen? Why did this happen? What are the institutional, cultural, social, psychological, um, legal reasons that led to this, you know, maybe disaster? And is there a way to tweak it, change it, maybe radically overhaul it? And this is a difficult normative question. So that's a wonderful statement of kind of the core claim and argument of the book. And let me just build on that by asking you what I think is a hard question of, I mean, how do we ever know that we need more cybersecurity? The internet, I mean, you talk a lot in the book about various trade-offs between upcode and downcode, and there are trade-offs for having more cybersecurity. You talk about, in the book, about software liability uh, and the reasons the legal hurdles to it, a well-known objection to software, to imposing software liability is that it would harm innovation or, you know, deter innovation on some, some dimension. 
the internet has flourished. It's it's the, the computer world has flourished. The di- digital world has flourished, and our lives have been enormously enriched by it. And the cybersecurity that we problems that we suffer through may just be the optimal cost, and maybe we're in the optimal situation now. How do we ever know for the benefits we've received? How do you know in any particular case that we need greater cybersecurity and that the costs of that cyber of the maybe fixing the upcode or improving the upcode are worth it? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's such a fair and important question, and. I think I have to say, I don't know that we're not at the optimal place. I mean, and this is a question about every subject matter that gets regulated, this question, and it needs to be, it needs to be asked and it needs to be addressed. So let me try to address it as best I can. So the first thing is to say, you know, we're both law professors, like in, in a way, so much of our day is, is, is consumed with um, reading about situations where some rule, some norm does not force a person or an uh, organization to internalize their costs. Polluters, you know, dumping stuff into the river, um, you know, things like that. And one of the things that I think we we know about that is that if you don't force people to internalize their costs, they generally won't. And that's almost guaranteed when we're talking about a business, that they're not going to internalize their costs. So the first thing is, is that there's a, there's a reason to think that if you don't force people to internalize their costs, they'll externalize their costs onto all of us. That's the first thing. The second thing is the history of security... The story I try to tell in the book is like things, problems happening because there's no liability, there's no penalty, there's no consequence, there's no cost to uh, producing bad code. And we get, uh, you know, the blue screen of death, we get uh, rampant hacking. Um, I, I don't think people, I, I mean, I'm sure you remember, but it was, I, you, I used to call IT like almost every other day to get rid of a virus on my computer. So, we kind of know that you know security vulnerabilities are going to proliferate if there's no internalization. And when there is internalization, like after 9-11, all of a sudden things got really, really better. And finally, how do we know that ultimately things got better from security, but we've choked off innovation? It doesn't seem like we've choked off innovation. There's still an enormous amount of innovation going on. We have historical examples of industries where, which were economically extremely important to the United States, um, where the innovation argument was made. And then finally, like in the case with the car in the late 1960s, when public attention was focused on uh, highway safety, Congress got into the act. Automobiles were, were were regulated, safety belts were mandated, yada, 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 and highway safety greatly increased. Ultimately, I think we need to experiment. We need to test. We need to methodically engage in uh, normative experimentation. Uh, that's why I'm a little bit against the AI um, call for AI regulation right now. I just still think, I think it's, it's just a little too early to know what to do with it. Um, so it's not like I love regulation. I just think that after, let's see, the internet's been around for roughly 50 years. I think we know enough to start doing things. Okay, you mentioned AI, so let me ask the last question about that. There's a lot of speculation, at least that I've read, that artificial intelligence systems are going to make computers and computer systems more vulnerable in various ways, including by empowering bad actors to be better able to exploit upcode. And a good example is phishing attacks. Uh, At least I've read that these AI systems are going to allow targeted, convincing phishing attacks in a, in a way that's not like anything that's going on now. So do you have a view about how AI affects the problems of your book? Um, yeah. So I, I would say uh, one of the main points I try to make in the book is that all security tools are dual use. That is, they can be used for good. They can be used for evil. They can be used for offense. It can be used for defense. So let's take encryption. Everyone loves encryption because it 
it really reliably keeps communications secret when implemented correctly. You know, so we love it when it's called encryption. We hate it when it's called ransomware. Um, and so the where you know some somebody encrypts your data and then requires you to pay money in order to decrypt it. So that's an example of security tool which is supposed to make us more secure, which makes us more insecure. So when people are now all of a sudden extremely anxious about AI and how it's going to be used offensively, I think that they miss the fact that AI and in particular the machine learning form that is so is so popular um, now. Um, this has been, you know, maybe you know, ten years at least been commercially deployed in commercial systems. Like when I go to these hacking conventions, I always I spend a lot of time walking and talking to vendors, and they all say the same. They all say the same thing, you know, AI, 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 and this is before ChatGPT. So you know, the technology gets better for attackers, but it also gets better for defenders. And um, I think there's no question one of the biggest barriers to um, hacking for people who are, let's say, in Eastern Europe is the language barrier. And of course, ChatGPT and um, these chatbots are unbelievably good at having people overcome whatever uh, linguistic difficulties they have um, about speaking competently in a particular language. But there's also there's AI generation tools out there. So you could, you know, figure out, well, does this look like it was created by a large language model? So I suspect that what will happen is that, you know, that phishing will get automated and it will be AI powered. And then our email clients will use as part of their spam filters, very sophisticated, more sophisticated AI generation detection uh, engines, and the cat and mouse game won't end there. So, so that that that's my take is that yes, of course, we're going to see definitely more sophisticated uh, attacks, and probably phishing is going to be the main vector. But we'll also probably see uh, more sophisticated defensive technologies come online soon, and the circle of life will continue. Scott Shapiro, thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Jack. It's always an incredible pleasure talking to you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. And of course, check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.